Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. We're looking at practical theology, specifically the ministry of pastoral care. So far, we've looked at the history of pastoral care, examples from the Bible, and the models that shape the modern discipline. This episode is simply named The Pastoral Visit. Our goal is to get more specific and to consider pastoral care in the context of a visit. As we will see, this can take numerous forms and have several dimensions, uh, but certain assumptions are constituent to each form of a pastoral encounter. I, I use the word visit because it is when we visit with others, whether it's at the kitchen table or at the coffee shop, that we often share what's on our hearts. And once again, I think it's important to state that this ministry belongs to the entire congregation. Uh, Each of us, clergy or lay, has occasion to provide a ministry of healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling, uh, that definition we've been working with, within the congregation and among the people we know. We'll look at dual roles in a few minutes and the limits on the care that we can provide. But for now, we're considering uh, a discipline that touches all of our relationships. Our first task, then, is to identify types of care. Friendly visiting, the first kind, is the time we spend simply being with someone under our care. Visiting with a lonely friend, with or without any kind of agenda, except spending time together, is a friendly visit. That's the the first type. Next is pastoral care. Not the topic, but the style of visit. Uh, Time we spend together to ponder something. Loss, illness, life changes, or anything else we could broadly describe as troubling. Even sharing happiness could be construed to be pastoral care, and may there be more of that. Uh, The next is pastoral counseling. It's an ongoing commitment to provide care, usually uh, in the same troubling areas of human concern, but delivered over time. This is often based on the complexity of the situation or the degree of the hurt experienced, um, and seldom exceeds what would be described as medium, uh, short, or medium-term care. And then we have psychotherapy, a formal relationship between a professional care provider and a client or patient. And while the goal of the therapist and the pastoral caregiver may be the same, only the therapist has the expertise in psychology to undertake this work. Even spiritual concerns, if rooted in deep psychological issues, should fall outside the purview of the pastoral caregiver. So, uh, a question. Can you think of anything else that might fit under the heading of pastoral care? Take a moment if you wish. Perhaps the first and most important question is, Am I qualified? There are at least two ways to answer this question based on what we've learned so far. Um, First, as elders of the church, we are called to care for the vulnerable, to model the comfort and mercy of Jesus with everyone we meet. 
Second, as wounded healers, we are uniquely qualified to walk with others, assuming that we're in touch with our own wounds. Uh, From our uh, dear friend, uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, he said, we do not have to escape our pains, but we can mobilize them in a common search for life. And while it would be unusual and inappropriate for you, uh, like Lucy, to hang out a shingle that says pastoral care, five cents, uh, I can guarantee you that at some time in the not-too-distant future, you will be engaged in a conversation with someone who reveals hurt or loss. Everyone tries their hand at pastoral care, and some do it well. Our next step, as we continue to move from the theoretical to the practical, is to look at some concrete steps we can follow in approaching a pastoral visit. In this section, I owe a debt to Carrie Doring and her fine book, The Practice of Pastoral Care, A Postmodern Approach. Doring suggests seven moments or steps that can define our time caring for someone else. These steps may be more comprehensive than we need for our introduction, but they provide a helpful overview of the kinds of things a pastoral caregiver is trying to keep in mind while delivering care. The first and most obvious is to listen with care and empathy. Um, Let's begin with empathy, the ability to understand and share feelings expressed. Can we walk a mile with our friend, uh, get some sense of what they're experiencing? And further, as Doring points out, can we maintain separation from the other person as we manage our own thoughts and feelings about what we hear? We can have a lively debate about whether whether anyone can fully enter the experience of another, uh, but for now, we'll assume that we can share feelings expressed. Listening with care is another matter. It it was Dr. Thomas Gordon who coined the term active listening and defined it as using our own words to restate what we think we heard, giving our conversational partner the opportunity to concur. Here's a fantasy conversation. Uh, You, it's bedtime. Uh, Them, but I don't want to go to bed. You, you seem unwilling to go to bed. Them. Oh, really? I I didn't mean it that way. Can I go to bed now? I told you it was fantasy, but I I think you get the point. So we're busy listening and trying our best to follow Dr. Gordon down the path of what I think you said, and we will eventually reach the point where we can no longer understand what we're hearing. Then we need to ask clarifying questions. And like everything in this episode, these questions can be helpful or get in the way of conversation. First, clarifying questions do what they're called. They clarify things that seem unclear in the telling. Did your conversational partner skip over something? Is something confusing or truly unclear? At the same time, asking questions can derail the conversation. Part of what we're actively listening for is the manner in which the story is being told. Does it seem rehearsed, or is it halting, like someone with new thoughts? Uh, 
If we interrupt too often, we distract the storyteller. Uh, The other caution is seeking too much background. Uh, Let them give you the amount of detail that fits their telling, uh, unless it seems unclear. Another dimension of hearing a story is listening for emotions. And this has two dimensions. Uh, What do you hear and what do you see? When the visual emotion and the described emotion don't match, something is going on. Or when the emotion described doesn't match the gravity of the situation, uh, something's going on. Remember from last week, uh, poor Sik Su was intent on caring for everyone else while she faded away in her sickbed. Even the most inept emotional detective knows that when someone shouts at the top of their voice, I said I'm fine, uh, they may not be fine. This emotional dimension provides a good segue to our second moment or step, uh, our response. And this too has numerous dimensions, beginning with our own emotional reaction to what we're hearing. If we are empathetic, uh, we cannot help but be affected by what we hear. The expression of strong emotion is seldom met with careful neutrality, and we will react based on what is being described. And we may also react based on the way strong emotion was expressed in our family of origin, and both of these things may be operating. The other dimension here is the actual situation described and our own history. If we have experienced precisely what is being described, this can become either a powerful resource, a true empathy, or a stumbling block to hearing the story. We can quickly slide into our own actual and emotional memories and be unable to hear anything. We may shift uh, into problem-solving mode, having had the same experience. And we may give the described situation the incorrect import, meaning the wrong weight or significance, because we tend to give it the same place in their life story as it occurs in our own. So we'll take an example, uh, uh, failing an exam. If you fail an exam and you still manage to carry on, uh, sharing this experience will likely not help the person who is failing for the very first time. If they have not had the experience of failing the exam and still passing the course, they're still in that in-between place, a place of uncertainty and fear. The final thing I'll add to this part of our discussion, and it relates to shared experience, though it doesn't have to, is offering something we call the silver lining. If you're tempted to say, "Ah, I failed a bunch of exams and and look at me now, or uh, you can't enjoy success unless you fail, or at least you're not dead, uh, then you're offering a silver lining. It's not helpful. If your conversational partner offers their own silver lining, that's generally okay since they got there themselves. Any thoughts? Do you have examples of how a shared experience can be an issue in trying to help someone? Take a moment if you wish. 
The third moment or step uh, involves limits on the role of caregiver. Doring frames it in terms of accountability. Is this situation beyond my level of expertise? Is there a legal or statutory issue here? Or am I caught in a dual role? Uh, and we'll look at each of these in turn. But overall, uh, the issue is understanding our own limits. And this might be the moment to remind you about uh, Judith Viorst and, and her excellent book called Necessary Losses. Um, the subtitle of the book pretty much covers it. The, the loves, illusions, dependencies, and impossible expectations that all of us have to give up in order to grow. Uh, in this modern classic, uh, Viorst begins with the moment you left your mother's womb and traces all the losses we experience in life. Her thesis is that everything includes loss. Your best day ever will come to an end and you will experience loss. The best day ever just ended. So if there's a theme we all share, it's loss. And loss is at the heart of pastoral care. And, and it seems obvious that we can manage most situations then that involve loss. And the church tends to be there throughout. We help kids grow up uh, and live with the loss of childhood. We marry formerly single people and establish that this is a new stage and that former life is done. We help people move through the loss of jobs, kids growing up and moving on, parents dying, illness, their own death. The church is a place where we manage loss. And, and this, of course, dovetails with our main theme, that from Jesus' death on the cross, we are reconciled with God. To reconcile and make new, as our creed in the United Church says, who works with us and others by the Spirit, we trust in God. So loss is typically a thing we can manage as opposed to things we cannot manage. Uh, domestic assault, clinical depression, child abuse, professional misconduct, mental disorders, and the need for urgent care. At this moment, we refer. We offer support, but we refer. The other important thing to consider here is dual roles. It is difficult to be a friend and a counselor. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. When we train ministers to become educational supervisors, um, we use a, a line graph to demonstrate that we become more effective as we deepen our relationship with an intern, but then we become less effective as the relationship moves into friendship. And so pastors and caregivers struggle with this daily, as do we all. If you have children, you know that it is difficult to be a parent and a friend. You can be like a friend, but you cannot be friends because you never stop being a parent. The fourth step or movement concerns the application of some of the theory that we've learned, along with other elements related to uh, context, which we ought to understand. For example, the last time we met Bobby and Sue and looked at family systems theory from Bowen and Friedman, and armed with this knowledge, we can listen wearing our family systems hat or any other hats that we possess. A moment ago, we talked about loss and the work of Judith Viorst. This is another example of the type of lens we need to have within our pastoral care toolkit. 
add the work of Dr. Kubler-Ross or any other theorist we've covered, and we're well on our way to being able to apply knowledge to a pastoral conversation. And Doring goes further and includes cultural studies and social science in this step. Take, for example, the sad story of Bobby and Sue. Um, since we're writing their sad story as we go, it may not surprise you to learn that there were issues in their hypothetical marriage before Sue got sick. It seems Sue, like so many women, worked all day and then came home and worked at home doing every domestic chore while Bobby played video games. He told Sue that he couldn't clean up because he didn't know how. Knowing that this uh, dual labor phenomena is well known in sociology and is the experience of many women uh, may not immediately give you something to help Sue, but it will give you an insight into her situation. Of course, she would never complain, so you may never learn of her troubles with Bobby. Uh, We know that pastoral care can be tricky. Next up is more context this time assessing the strengths and weaknesses of cultural, community, and family systems, this is from Doring, uh, to understand how your friend exists in these contexts. So how are they regarded by their family, their congregation, their co-workers? Is there some systematic barrier to their well-being, such as being regarded as fragile in their family, or being religious and surrounded by non-believers in their workplace. Issues of race, gender, economic status are all relevant here and how they are managed by close friends and family. The second to last step or movement is theological reflection. Put simply, is there a theological theme or idea that is guiding the person under care. People will often describe an understanding of God uh, and God's role in their situation, and, and this will go unexplored. The task here is not to argue with the person you're caring for, rather to explore these ideas as a means to broaden your understanding of their situation and possibly broaden their own theological worldview. So, for example, people frequently feel they're being punished by God, and this idea is often stated as fact. The temptation for the caregiver is to argue that that's not how God operates, that God is loving and merciful and and so on. Rather, we should encourage them to say more, to perhaps explore why they feel they're being punished, to ponder together why it might feel that way. Even asking the question, does God punish people, is better than simply disagreeing and saying, God would never do that. Uh, So, uh, question. Can you think of uh, any other unhelpful theological concepts? Take a moment, if you wish. Finally, the last movement is a look at next steps, perhaps making a plan or agreeing to talk again. Often someone will resolve to do something and the caregiver has a role in helping them put this in action. Often people will float trial balloons. Um, I should just go and tell Bobby off, Sue says. And it falls to the caregiver to say, well, what if you did? 
This final step should not be about problem-solving or making excessive suggestions. It's more a way to build on the direction that is emerging from your friend's own reflections. So how about an exercise? We're moving toward the end. Uh, If you have shared this episode with someone you know, uh, you could covenant with them to try a little pastoral care on each other. Well, how might that work? First, uh, choose who will be caregiver and who will receive care. The subject of the care, the care receiver, chooses something vexing but not too vexing and briefly describes the matter in a couple of minutes. The conversation continues using the movement we've established in this episode, clarifying questions, drawing on personal experience, perhaps suggesting a frame for understanding the situation, all in about eight or ten minutes of conversation. Then switch places. Care receiver becomes caregiver. Same structure. And and when you're done, uh, review the conversations. Was it helpful? Did you learn anything? What needs more practice? And so on. So this ends our four-part series on pastoral care. I hope you found it meaningful. If you'd like to share a review, I encourage you to add one wherever you get your pods. Uh, Also, you can visit the website at p2.ca slash podcast and take a look at some of the additional stuff you'll find there. Thanks again for joining me.